0: Fresh new stuff. And Jane Effler will bring you
1: there. So let's talk about it when life ends on the air.
0: Good morning beautiful outside. It's only sixty degrees. It's really nice. And we have author Jeff Bond here and we're gonna talk about the begonia killer. It's a really cool story. So good morning and welcome back to MJ Network.
1: Thank you, Fran. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back.
0: It is good to be back, yes. It's good to be so I, I took off the month of July by the way. you are the first one.
1: Oh great. Like oh, I, I hope I hope it's uh I hope it's an easy one. <laughs>
0: I hope so, too. <laughs> I've got a ton of, kind of questions. So how how did you create Molly? I love her. And how did you create her and her past with Quaid and Jer- Jerwood Oak Jones? Like a short summary of the plot so we can get to know her. I love her. I think she's cool.
1: Yeah, so Molly McGill is the, she's the main character. She's the, the a private investigator uh here in, in the book The Begonia Killer. Um and she's part of a larger team of freelance operatives uh with uh Quade Rafferty and Durwood Oak Jones. So uh when I when I set out to think about how to write an action adventure series and a a series that you know my readers would enjoy and would would provide a lot of variety. I wanted to, to find a few different heroes that have very different um, mm. different backstories and, and modes of thinking about, uh, you know, you know stories and the like, sorts of things that they were doing. And so Molly is very much, you know, she's a single mother of two and a private investigator at the same time. She's kind of in that uh, Stephanie Plum amateur sleuth mode. Um, and so a lot of the things that she's dealing with is trying to kind of grapple with her life and the, the things going on at home while she's balancing this kind of crazy career. Um, and then you have Quade Rafferty, who's got this larger-than-life backstory. He was the former governor of Massachusetts, and he's kind of a slick-talking ex-politician who, you know, has got a Rolodex where he knows everybody in town and can make things happen. And then Derwood O. Jones is the third part of the team, and he's he's an ex-Marine, he's kind of in the Jack Reacher mode, so, you know, with him, you're talking about a lot of fight scenes and a lot of, uh, you know, righteous anger and trying to right wrongs. So, they all come at the world from a very different perspective. You know, Molly's role, to me, is really to bring in kind of the every woman, the every man type of person who, you know, has, has day-to-day concerns that we all have, or certainly that I have in my life, um, and she's thrown into adventures and things like that. So, um, that, that's the backdrop of the story and or of the series, the Third Chance Enterprises series and where Molly fits into it. And The Begonia Killer is, is a standalone mm-hmm. mystery that's just really focused on Molly. So we, we hear a little bit in the story about Quaid and Durwood just kind of hearing backstory and other things that Molly's done in her life to help us understand the Begonia mystery better. But it's really a, you know a smaller story that's really focused on... Molly's character and her taking on a specific case um, in the neighborhood.
0: Well, you see, I like trees and flowers a lot, mostly trees. So why did you kill? Why did you destroy the begonias? I was very sad. That broke my heart. <laughs>
1: yeah. I said, why so, are you killing my
0: poor flowers?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. So the the story, uh, the the main suspect in the the book, the begonia killer, is this kind of odd. Uh, a guy named Kent Kirkland who's very tidy mm-hmm. and meticulous and uh, he is a neighbor of, of a person named Martha Dodson who hires Molly to look into his suspicious behavior um, and so the suspicious behavior that the title references The Begonia Killer and the, the graphic on the front of the book references mm-hmm. is Martha observes Kent Kirkland massacring his begonias. He's got a little kind of mailbox full of begonias and mm-hmm. he just—it seems, it seems. Martha thinks that he's not satisfied with how they're thriving and how they're doing, and he's tended them meticulously. And he just one day he walks out there, and he's just not pleased with with how they're looking and how they're progressing. And so he just mm-hmm. takes the, the loppers to them and just just destroys them in a fit of rage. And so for Martha, the neighbor who hires Molly, you know, it, it fits into this larger narrative she has that mm-hmm. that Kent Kirkland is up to no good. Um, she's, she's been reading in the, news, in the newspaper there are a couple of boys who've gone missing in the last six or eight months, um, and she thinks the timing and the location of when they went missing is suspicious. Uh, Kent also has a uh, papered-over bedroom over his garage, and so Martha develops the theory that Kent uh, has control issues and that mm. he has maybe taken these two boys. And so that's why, as the story begins, um, the first scene we hear Molly hearing the the Martha's evidence and why she believes that Kent Kirkland needs to be investigated further.
0: So, what is the reason she Martha wants to hire her, and what supports her theory that Calvin and Johnny were kidnapped, and who does she suspect? Mm.
1: Right, right. So, so definitely she suspects Kent Kirkland, you know, her neighbor, her neighbor yeah. down the street. Um, and so, you know, she, she talks to Molly, and, and you know, Mo, Molly gets to hear her her story. And I think at first, Molly has a lot of respect for Martha and thinks she seems like a reasonable person, and she's she's not an, an idle snoop. I think that's one of the first lines of the book, you know, that she, she thinks that her assessment of Molly, is, or of Martha, is that she's a, uh, you know, a reputable person and that uh, she, she's very observant. And so Molly wants to help Martha, and then, halfway through the first scene we hear that Martha has this story that Kent's actually taken these two boys against uh, their will and is keeping them in the room and and uh, Molly's a little shell-shocked because it does seem like a big leap to go from you know somebody massacred their begonias on the front to you know they kidnapped two boys Um, but Mm -hmm. Molly sticks it out and keeps hearing you know what are the other things that Martha has seen and uh, I think Martha read in the newspaper that one of the boys before he disappeared said he wanted a scooter for Christmas and it turns out mm. that Kent Kirkman did have a big box delivered to his house from a company that made scooters. Well, now it turns out that the company also makes dehumidifiers and vacuums and things like that. So, you know, again, the evidence is not clear-cut. Um, and, and Martha wants Molly to look into it and see if she can investigate whether or not more might be going on than just this collection of, of odd circumstances surrounding Kent.
0: So now she goes to the police, Martha, but they don't believe her. And what about her husband?
1: Yeah, the police kind of blow off Martha's uh, theory. I mean, they think that she's got too much time on her hands. She's just got an overactive imagination. Um, I think somebody at the front desk actually suggested she try uh, reading some J.D. Robb novels to kind of take her mind off of things. So, you know, the police give her a brush off, which definitely reps Molly the wrong way. Um, and then later in the book when Molly meets Martha's husband, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's not much better. You know, he's also kind of dismissive of, of his wife's theories and seems to think they're ridiculous and delusional. Um, you know, he's, he's into, uh, you know, model trains and, you know, he's got his his hobbies and he thinks that this is kind of an idle hobby of his wife to snoop on the neighbors and dream up ideas. So he also doesn't. Seem to respect Martha's instincts, right? And uh, and I think all those things, you know, both the police's being dismissive and her husband's being dismissive, mm. nudge Molly towards helping out. I think she feels like it's not fair that, you know, that other people in Martha's life aren't respecting her. And even if Molly, maybe has some questions about the theory herself or isn't sure that it completely holds up. Uh, you know Worked against the, the scrutiny She might have She still You know Feels like She ought to be On Martha's side And after You know Spending time with her uh, Really wants to help So she She takes the case Even though uh, In other circumstances She might not have
0: She's a good person I like Molly <laughs> Now This is been Molly's family And huh. Her grandma Reminded me Of my mother <laughs> <laughs> but, Yes my mom was very critical of me. I had
1: mm-hmm. to be
0: perfect. Nothing I right. did. If it anything, forget it. You don't want to know. So why was she so critical about it? Tell us about Zach and why he can be a difficult teen, like all teens we know.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so Molly, and a big part of Molly's stories in and, and both Anarchy of the Mice and Karen, the You Killer, is her busy family life, you know, and all the things she's got to yeah. do. Um, she's got a six-year-old daughter, Karen, You know, she's also got a rebellious 14-year-old, Zach, and then she's got, as you said, a very difficult living grandmother named Eunice. Um, And each of these family members are kind of in a particular stage of their life that makes them especially challenging for Molly, who's, you know, the head of the household to deal with. You know, you've got Karen, the 6-year-old, who's becoming independent. You know, she's just just now kind of deciding that that, you know realizing all these things that she can do and and wanting to do all these things that she's maybe hardly capable of and then you you know you've got zach who's 14 and he's always got a skateboard under his arm and he's kind of got your typical teenage eye rolling and sarcasm down pat you know but at the same time he's also Mm. a little vulnerable you know he's got things that he's insecure about whether it's his hair or, or friends or things like that so molly as a parent, has got a balance, you know, trying to keep him in check and having some measure of discipline at the same time as she is supportive of him and she also, you know, struggles with the fact that he doesn't have a dad around and she's sympathetic to that. And so she's walking a tightrope with Zach on just just kind of how hard of a a, a, she wants to pull on the reins with Zach. And then on top of all that, we've got Granny, who, you know.
0: Granny, yeah, well, Granny.
1: Yeah, I mean, Granny, who, you know, she, she's, I think mean, a lot of people like Granny the best of, of the uh, of the secondary characters in a lot of these third chance books. I mean, she's reached a, a point in life where she's just, a thought pops in her head and she's just going to say it, right? There's no filter. She's going to, whether it's, you know, one of Molly's, uh, you know, boyfriends or, or possible boyfriends who comes to the door or something, whether that's Quaid or Art Judd later in this book, I mean, she's just going to say it exactly the way she she sees it, you know, without worrying about, you know, Molly's feelings or anybody else. So uh, she's kind of a loose cannon, and any, anytime she walks onto the page, you know, you never know what quite what she's going to say. A lot of times, as you say, it's, it's critical of Molly, and she's got her own ideas about where the Tupperware lids should be stored, and, and uh, you know, how Molly should should parent the kids, and who Molly should date, and all that. And So she's full of opinions, and Molly just kind of has to uh, parry them as best she can and uh <laughs> and try try to have uh Granny not uh, cause too much collateral damage when she when she opens her mouth.
0: I know. What can I say? A lot of people like that. Sometimes you just gotta say what you're thinking, whatever. Right, so, right. <laughs> Martha tells her about Kirkland, but what research does she do to learn more about him? And what does she learn about the parents of the two missing boys?
1: And she yeah, takes so, that on too. Whoa. Right, so I think as 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 Molly takes on the case um I think you know her first step is to to research the cases online you know and, and look and and find out what she can about the two different cases um she also, she goes to visit the police, and, and she does have one of the, the detective, Art Judd, who she meets. She, he kind of fills her in on what the working police theories are on, on the two Mystic Boys. We've got Johnny Ramos and Calvin Witt. And, uh, so Johnny's parents, uh, his father was, was is Venezuelan, um, and they they divorce, and the and the dad kind of takes off back to Venezuela, and the police believe that they took their son, you know, that he took the son mm-hmm. back to Venezuela, and and so they've tried to do the police have tried to yeah. do some things, Johnny's mother has tried to do some things to to force the the father to. to and, and to say more about what's going on there, but uh, the Venezuelan government is kind of stonewalling them. So one of the things that Molly does is she convinces the detective to let her just
0: yeah. borrow
1: uh, a, a single letter that has maybe a phone number for the Venezuelan consulate and the case file number from from Johnny's disappearance, and um, she gets that one concession out of the detective, who's generally you know dismissive about this effort, but she does convince him to to give her that letter so she she makes some calls and uh and, and doesn't really get very far but uh but she she so she tries these sort of typical uh private investigator uh measures to see what see what can be found but unfortunately kind of runs into a wall and can't find a whole lot more out than uh, than what the police already know and what's in the newspaper
0: that's really sad So how many people does she interview and contact to learn more about each boy? Why do you think that Johnny's not in Venezuela? She doesn't learn very much about the government from the mother either.
1: Yeah, yeah, so she she can't. I mean, you know, that scene there where Molly visits Johnny's mother and tries to just learn more about the case, And and Molly and uh, Johnny's mother is a little um, as reluctant, I think, to to tell her too much at the beginning because I think she feels like she's she's gotten her hopes up before. Um, She's she's busy herself. She's got twin girls who are who are just toddlers, Um, and so you know she's also she's working at Dollar General and she's got a lot of shifts. A little bit like Molly in that way, that she has a lot going on. And as heartbroken as she is about her son being missing. You know, she she's tried to, to get answers out of, you know, the Venezuelan government and make Johnny's dad, you know, either produce Johnny or say that he's okay in Venezuela and, and hasn't had luck with it. And I think my sense is that she's just gotten her hopes up many times and had them dashed and again and again kind of runs into a wall. And so, you know, at the point where Molly contacts her, I think she's a little she, she's a little resigned to her fate and she's just doing the best she can for her two little girls who you know she still has and she still has some control mm. over it and so she's cleaning up. so molly in order to, to get johnny's mother to really cooperate and tell her more you know and give her some clues that she might you know take somewhere in this case she's really got to earn the mother's trust and she actually follows uh, Johnny's mother back to her apartment and she helps out a little bit with the, the toddler girls who are in there and she kind of has to use some of her own you know, domestic uh, expertise to earn Johnny's mother's trust and to have her feel like okay well this person Molly McGill is somebody who might actually be able to help me who seems like she's got a good heart and and would have Johnny's interests in mind. She's not just, you know, some journalist who's called me up and wants mm. some kind of a sensational story for for a headline or something like that. So Molly does a little work on that front, uh, and then that work results in a couple of clues that I won't that I won't uh,
0: no, spoil you can't tell here. Anybody. But she,
1: she, you know, but she has to, she has to do a little work and she has to empathize and get to know Johnny's mother in order to to move forward with the case.
0: Why is it that what did so why didn't social services come into play with these boys? I mean, as an educator, they don't always do everything. They don't always do it right. They don't always get it right at all social services. Sometimes they just automatically say, Well, you know, the kid is whatever and sometimes as I've as I've known from before, something bad happens or they place a child in the wrong place and something even worse happens. So what is what didn't social services do anything to help them?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I think in both cases Calvin's and Johnny's case, you know, there 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 hence that there were interactions with social services um and mm. but they they just they just didn't really get to the point of feeling that it was it was something where they were going to make a move of taking one of the boys out of the homes. Um you know, there was neglect in the case of Calvin. We hear that Calvin kind of had an unhealthy food environment where the only foods available were you know kind of sugary and processed, and and he he had quite a, uh, a weight problem, and uh, and and some of that also affected him in school and and being able to relate to his peers and things like that, and so and and in general with Calvin there was just a lot of neglect and we learn early in the book that the parents didn't really report him missing until, you know, the second the second night that he was gone, I think it was. Um That's it. so, you know, I, I think it's it's in that broad category of neglect that is, you know, not so egregious and, and not really involving, you know, the kind of physical harm where social services would mm-hmm. step in immediately and and stop it. Um it's that kind of more you know, in some ways just as tragic, uh, kind of neglect. Um, so, yeah, I think it's one of those kind of near-miss situations or just, you know, social services being stretched thin and not really feeling like the circumstances were enough to warrant, uh, to warrant a more assertive move that might have, you know, saved them from whatever has happened to cause them to go missing here.
0: I dealt with them for a very long time, and let me tell you, I I don't know what got into me sometimes because I was like a barracuda to make sure those kids got help or have taken yeah, It's really hard because they don't really care. They're just like so stressed. Oh, he'll be okay, whatever. When the kid winds up dead and that's happened, then Mm -hmm. what are you going to say? So what about the Ferguson house? Why are they allowed to have so many people living there? Why hasn't anybody found out what's really going on? I mean, talk about neglect, my God.
1: Right, right. So the Ferguson house we hear early in the story. It's a, it's a large kind yeah. of an old mansion that is. It's up the block from Kent Kirkland's house and Martha Dodson's house. The neighborhood that Molly is working in here, um, and it's an old, dilapidated place. It's got you know, uh, shingles you know sloughing off the roof and and uh, gutters hanging and you know blankets flapping in windows and things like that. And you've got. There are random people living there, there are runaways, there are a bunch of foster kids that the Fergusons have managed to get in their care, and they're all living in squalor. So um, so the the explanation that we get from Detective Judd when, when they start asking about the Ferguson place is that the Fergusons, the family, the the husband and wife that are there, they, they know some people in high places, and they've been able to... You know, evade scrutiny because of their mm-hmm. their some kind of nebulous political connections in town. And we also find out that Kent Kirkland, right, who's our our mm-hmm. um, our, our potential um, villain here, uh, or at least our suspect, he has butted heads with the Fergusons before. He thinks they're 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 despicable and what they you know what they're doing with the kids and, and different people who live there is terrible. He describes them the Mali as two devils. So we have this conflict between the Ferguson House which are, which is, mm. you know, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Kent Kirkland who has this really neat and meticulous house and, you know, he can't stand it that his begonias aren't perfect. You know, he's gonna he's gonna remove them for, for you know, having a pedal out of place. And then you have the oh. Ferguson house up up higher on the hill that is the complete opposite. So we have these two polar opposites of approaches in, in the Ferguson and, and uh, in Kent Kirkland.
0: Well, why does Ken believe her at first? Ken Kirkland believes her at first, and why did he take forever for him to get rid of her? There, She was in the house, and she just kept coming up. I was cracking up. I go like, okay, Molly, when are you going to leave? He's going to bop you over the head or something.
1: <laughs> right, right. So that, that one of the, the yeah, the most stressful uh, scenes in the book is uh, yeah. pretty early on. you know, Molly takes the case, and she starts doing some traditional pub, you know, um, private investigator sorts of things of, of tailing Kent and uh, licking into his trash on trash days and things like that. And she, as I said, she kind of hits a, a wall and, and isn't able to come up with a whole lot to go on. So she decides to take the bold step of trying to get into Kirkland's house. Um, and so to do that, she has to come up with a ruse. Um, and she tells him that she's from the Northern New Jersey Horticulture Society And, you know, she just happened <laughs> walking by and noticed his, his really amazing uh, flower beds And, you know, she wanted to reach out to him as a fellow enthusiast Fellow gardening enthusiast And, you know, here we have these seed packets and, this and this. So she, she's got a whole story that she's concocted I mean, in her work with Quaid and Durwood You know, we've seen an anarchy of the mice She's pretended to be a... A real firebrand blogger to to infiltrate the the blind mice, which were the the big anarchist hacker group at the at the center of that book, you know, so she 's got this history of assuming a character, assuming a different identity um, and and getting in and finding out more based on that so she she 's definitely putting those skills to her best use in this case with Kent Kirkland, you know showing up at his door he 's extremely hostile at the door and doesn't entertain visitors, but she's got you know this story about flowers, and she's even got a packet of begonia seeds. You know that these are especially hardy seeds that would would maybe survive the winter, and and you know he could keep them as perennials instead of them being annual. So, um, so she's she's done her homework. She has an idea of what Kent Kirkland might be interested in, and uh, and yeah, she she gets into the house, and he keeps trying to get rid of her, and she keeps coming up with more and more outlandish ways to stay to get more of a look inside, to see if Calvin and Johnny could be inside, you know, or there is there a little bike inside? Is it, you know, she's, she's desperate for any kind of clues that would tell her if something weird really is going in, on inside. And, and Kent Kent struggles to get her out, and, and, and she's just as, uh, as resilient and, and dogged uh, to stay in and find out more.
0: So who is Angel Wilcox, and how does he help to bring to light something that might help her?
1: Yeah, so Andre Wilcox is a uh, he's the head of a tutoring center downtown. We find out one of the yeah. things that we learned from Johnny's uh, mother is that Johnny spent some time uh, getting extra help at a tutoring center called We Will Rise. Uh, it's kind of downtown, and so Molly, when Molly gets that information from Johnny's mother, she goes down and pays a trip to invent, to um, to hear more about Johnny at the tutoring center. And we find out, she also finds out while she's down there in kind of a twist that Calvin also was there. So now we have both of the missing boys spent some time at We Will Rise at this tutoring center. Um, mm-hmm. And so when Molly's down there, of course, you know, again, Molly has a real expertise with kids and, and everything. And she, she chats a little bit with, with Andre about the the tutoring center and their work there and, and hears some more detail about the boys and how they interacted with other kids down there Um and uh, there, there's there's a couple of of key things that she learns that I that I won't spoil down there, um, but it's just it's another place where uh, her domestic ex- expertise is is brought to bear and and moves the case forward.
0: Well, in face with danger, Molly and Martha must think fast because when Audie shows up, how does she get blindsided? So, yeah, people, so you gotta a, you gotta be careful here, people.
1: Right, right. Yeah, at the climax. Um, of the story, uh, Art Judd, the detective, is is there, and I think you know Art is portrayed as a pretty, is a good cop, uh, a capable cop, and somebody who's usually on the ball, a detective, I should say rather. Um, but he de- he is thrown off balance a little bit in the climax, and I think the moment where yeah. where he he gets off balance and loses his focus is when um, you know Martha brings up the subject of Molly, you know, and I think they've they've had a couple moments throughout the book where they've got some kind of a a relationship is brewing and and his his feelings have been piqued with Molly and i think he loses that professional focus when Martha brings up the subject of Molly and he starts to think a little bit about how he's acted towards Molly and and uh, you know whether or not he's given her her and her opinions the the proper due and so um i think he has a moment of reflection there which is in general pretty good for a character but i think when you're at the climax of a story and there's there's you know a tense situation around the corner. It can be it can be trouble. So um, it, it is kind of a moment where the romantic uh, situation between mm. Molly and Art kind of co- kind of collides with um, the mystery and the thriller part of this story.
0: Okay. Now I know you said it's a standalone, and she might like him. Are you going to bring them back together? By the way Again
1: Well you know I feel like I, I can, can see this together And of course Molly's romantic History I mean here You know At the end of Anarchy of the Mice If you haven't read it I hate to Give too much away But um, she does mm-hmm. have a, An association here With Quaid um, Yeah I know Who's a, a notorious Ladies man And I think Many people were Um I I've had some readers be disappointed to to open up Begonia Co and start reading and find out that Molly and Quaid didn't stay together. Um now there mm-hmm. is a, a a pretty lengthy um backstory passage where we learn a little bit about what happened there. Um so I, I do think, you know, Molly and Art uh have have a chance, you know, of working out long term. I mean they mm-hmm. would be a blended family. I think art, art is divorced and has a a sixteen year old daughter, so uh, and, of course, Molly has a 14-year-old son and a 6-year-old daughter, so they would be a blended family. I think, you know, personality-wise, art has kind of got that world-weary, uh, a little bit of a beaten-down detective feel. And, and Molly, mm-hmm. although she's, she's been through a lot in her life, she's got a lot of... Natural enthusiasm and and she's very upbeat, you know, in the face of whatever they she has to face, both at home and and with these crazy cases that she's involved in. So I could see them being a good fit there. I think they there are a lot of ways in which they balance each other out well, and so I think uh, I, I do have a spot for my lined up uh, in the in the series. Maybe the next book will be Quades, but the book after that in this series. Um, will probably be a big adventure with all three of our main heroes, Quade, Durwood, and Molly. And uh, I could definitely see Art uh, being a part of that story and, and being uh, being attached to Molly. Perhaps we'll see. i will have to we'll have to start drafting and and see see where the story goes. Yeah.
0: I like Durwood the best, though. Sorry, <laughs> she's my favorite. <laughs> you know,
1: yeah. A lot of people do. I mean, and, and so actually, you know, when I was writing the standalones, I did. It was a conscious choice to have Durwood. Dear would be the first standalone because I know I like had, that one. Yeah, people had responded so well to to Durwood that I thought you know a, a whole book focused around him and his character and where he comes from. Um, I thought would be satisfying for a lot of readers. Yeah.
0: So why does Molly? Why does he realize that Molly is right about the boys, and he changes his mind because she's got a point there?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think um there 's a progression throughout the book where um you know both Molly and Martha you know this theory that seems kind of completely wild um and that a lot of the powers that be have not uh have, have not given its due um you know. Just by kind of hard work and and continuing to do the the and tackling and private investigator work, I think Molly accumulates enough clues and information, and again you know without giving too much away about whether or not it is cancer or it isn 't um, I think she she finally convinces art that look there there 's something here maybe it 's not exactly what we thought at the beginning or maybe it 's not quite how we thought it would be, but mm. you know you ne- you need to take you know my work and martha 's you know and martha 's instincts seriously, and I think art just generally by by listening and and by the you know the dint of molly 's hard work uh, finally comes around to that idea that he needs to open up his mind a little bit and not kind of be the the cranky old detective that he's been for years and years and that maybe hasn't gotten him uh where he'd like to be in his you know personal life uh it's time to open up his mind a little bit and, and listen and uh, and be open to an interpretation that's not the one that he started the, the book with.
0: Now I have, before I forget, Thursday at 10, this is exciting, double interview, two books, Iris Johansson, The Bullet, and the one that's not out yet, High Stakes. should be interesting. On the 10th, the author of Until I Find You, on the 12th, the author of The Mad List Lies. On the 16th, everybody, we love Cindy McDonald. On the 19th, I'm doing a special with Dennis Palumbo. We're going to talk about panic attacks. Because with this pandemic going on, a lot of people are getting panic attacks, which is really sad. And on that's the 19th. On the 23rd, somebody who everybody knows and loves, Alan Jacobson at 12 o'clock, The Lost Girl. Now, on the 25th, okay, I'll spill it now. Somebody asked me, I'm not sure if it was you or somebody else asked me, how come I always get what the book is about and then I get something that nobody else sees. On August 25th, you're going to find out why. On August 25th, I'm going to interview my professor from Lehman College for my second master's who made my life very difficult in that first class. And that's all I'll say. Dr. George Cavuto and I are going to talk about the megalization of education and how children should be assessed in reading and why he taught me everything I know. And on the 30th, the author threw through the door. That is August, everybody. That should be interesting, too. I, I tagged him on LinkedIn, and he recognized me. He says, you're the one that was the smartest one in my class, and I taught you do for 15 weeks. I said, yes, you did. He did. <laughs> So how did you create the final scenes without giving it away?
1: Uh yeah, so I think I knew what you're getting at there. Yeah, there is there's is a kind of a final scene that that provides a twist. Yeah. Um mm. Yeah, I mean I, I guess I would just say as I mean I, this is my 6th book now that I've I've learned a few feints, and uh mm. uh here uh, I had to strategically add in a a a second marriage and things like that to to make the names sufficiently surprising. Um, And, uh, yeah, I I think there's kind of a a little bit of an art to to bringing together all the threads of the story at the very end and to have the the denouement, you know, the the very last parts of the book, still offer a few surprises at the same time as they're kind of wrapping everything up. And so... um, Sometimes that requires you to go back through the book and sprinkle a few few different mm. clues or a few different notes and so um, but i I have, I have generally gotten the feedback that people feel like the 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 ending does that that there's there's enough of a surprise but a, a good feeling of closure and the feeling that that everybody all the side characters kind of got their due and had their story mm. told in full um, and uh, with this book uh, in particular there were there were a few hoops to go through to get there, but um I feel pretty good about uh how everybody comes out in the end. Yeah.
0: Well, so did I, but I was surprised too. I'm gonna write something on another note. Astroplane. Okay. So how did you you know what is odd about Kirkland's character that comes through in the final scene? This guy's really weird.
1: Yeah, so Kirkland, you know, he he his his overriding characteristic I think is just his need to control you know to be tidy and we do find out later in the book that the, with the begonias you know it, that Martha's theory was basically right that he it it bothered him that the begonias would get scraggly towards the end of the growing season and and he and he was he was insistent on trying to get them to be perennials and to to winter over and stay and and he just couldn't make it work and so he, that that's when he he sort of massacred them so And we we find out other things when Molly's in the house on her visit. You know, we see a lot of examples of, um, you know, his pantry is, you know, he's got separate uh, containers for all the granola bars and things like that. And, you know, he's got a lot of really tidy things that he does in the house. And then there are just a couple of off notes where, you know, for example, his books are not tidy. He's got a, a bookshelf that's not tidy. And so, you know, the central question of how did he become that way, you know, what happened with him is something that we address in the end, as well, you know we, we theres some some backstory that 's revealed um, that that I think provides some more satisfying answers about mm-hmm. how did he become this character um, I think there there are people that have read it and felt and, and ended up having quite a bit of sympathy for Kent Kirkland, who certainly when Molly meets her she 's got no sympathy for him <laughs> you know um, so uh, I definitely saw the the story as something where I wanted to. to Tell not just Molly's story and explain, you know, her kids and and how her life has is, is, has gotten to be what it is, but also uh, the story of of the main suspect, Ken Kirkland. So um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance to him, and and hopefully readers will find him engaging as a as a possible villain.
0: Well, I don't know if you are gonna bring him back. I'm holding this over there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm like all over the place. Here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now. This is a question that I've asked other authors, and it's hard. You create characters in a series, and you keep the plot interesting for the reader. How do you do that without people saying, oh, God, it's another Quaid, it's another Derby, it's another Molly, oh, my God, no, don't do this to me. I've been reading too many books, and I've read a few recently, and I said, oh, my God, not another another so-and-so book and another character, and I'm going to go to sleep on this one. Right. So how do you create a series where the, I said, oh, gee, I can't wait for Clay to come back or somebody?
1: How do mm-hmm. you do that
0: to keep interest in the series?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure the answer is different for every writer. I mean, for me, though, it, it is very important to have variety, um, not just for my readers, but, I mean, for myself. I mean, if I'm writing the same book you know, if I wanted to write a, a, a Durwood Deer, a book, you know, every single time out of the gate, you know, and he's got, you know, he gets a letter and there's an injustice and he's got to go confront the bad guys and, you know, they fight him. He does a big fight, you know, 30% of the way through the book and halfway through the book, there's a big twist, you know, I mean, I just, I, I can't maintain my own interest as a writer in stories mm-hmm. like that, you know, and doing it in a very formulaic yeah. way. Um, So for me, I mean, I talked a little bit earlier about how I I really, with this series, set up Molly, you know, having this every woman, you know, domestic flavor as well as the private investigator angle. And then Quaid, who's got these kind of big, crazy cases like Astroplane, which, you know, maybe we'll talk about here in a bit. But,
0: you know, he's
1: got – He's dealing with these big supervillains and you know these far-flung adventures, you know across continents, you know. And then Durwood is is very kind of focused and you know he's again he's got a lot of you know ex-military and you know gunpowder you know gunpowder type of stuff and these very atmospheric stories that center around him. So in this series, I've I've really very intentionally come up with three very different characters that lead themselves naturally into the, into the different kinds of stories. So. You know, for me I've got these standalone stories that you know, Durwoods are in these kind of atmospheric western style mysteries. Molly's kinda of got these capers that make you think a little bit of Stephanie Plum or or um or other books in that kinda of almost cozy genre. Um, and then Quaid has these big huge action adventure stories that are more like the Da Vinci Code and stuff like that. And then on top of that, you know, Anarchy of the Mice is a book that brings them all three together, right? Um, So I think it could be interesting to have the three different modes interacting and what are the kind of conflicts that they have between themselves. Um, So I think right at the start, kind of by construction, um, it allows me to, to tell different kinds of stories and to probably not get back to another Durwood book, you know, until two or three years after the previous one. At which point, hopefully, my audience is ready to hear something that's not going to be the same as the first Derwood book. Of course, I mean, I think that's a separate issue of how do you take a a good you know a good genre expectation and the, the book that people want to hear and make it fresh. You know, you've got to have the the villains got to be fresh. You know, the plot twists all need to be different. I mean, but even you know beyond that, now I think with third chance enterprises and having three different heroes, uh, hopefully there's there's a good amount of variety that's kind of built in the way that. That I've conceived the series.
0: Now, the other question I've been asking everybody is, the hardest thing, the hardest thing for me when I did Population Zero, was to figure out number one the title, and number one the and number two the cover. So, how yeah. do you decide the titles for your book and the cover? I mean, everybody said the title that I picked is really good. It really, they sort yeah. of picked it for me. The publishing company, they did all right, but they haven't yeah. done anything to publicize the book. So. Everybody, today is the first day of my tour with Partners in Prime. Yes. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, well, theres a, I won't say who it is. There's a, a reviewer. She gave me the first review. I was in shock that she even gave me four stars. I was really surprised because uh, it's, it's, it, it, it's rare that I got a nice review from her. I'm really excited. So that starts me off today until the end of the month. Yes, you never know. So how do you decide on the titles and the covers for your book?
1: Yeah, I mean, so for me, you know, the titles, sometimes titles are easy and sometimes they're hard. Um, when mm. I start writing on a new book, you know, and I've got a character, of course, this is the, was the third book in the Third Chance Enterprise series, so I already had the main character. I knew it was going to be a Molly story, Um i I'll, I'll kind of have a few plot ideas and I'll keep a notebook around and I'll carry it around and i'll have a, a I'll have a separate page of my notebook that'll just say titles you know and i'll you know I'll think you know I'll just keep jotting you know maybe it's a word that would be good or a phrase or you know just an idea for the title so i i I'll, I'll usually just let it simmer for a while while I'm working on the plot and it doesn't usually take that long for it to come together so um you know, for this story, for example, I mean, I wanted it to have, you know, an old kind of pulp fiction style, which is the style that, you know, we've chosen to do the art, you know, the titles with. So I wanted something that kind of had a an exciting, uh, dangerous feel to it, but also hinted at that kind of domestic and cozy side that goes with Molly's character and with the story. So, you know, the idea of killing begonias <laughs> Uh, Mm, I
0: feel so bad, the begonias.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you can draw out one element from the story i think and kind of repurpose it in a way that you know gives you a title that's kind of arresting that you know somebody hears and thinks oh i really got to know more about that you know so the begonia killer came to me after a while i mean the word begonia was sitting around on my on my notebook page and of course killer is a is a sort of an exciting mystery type of word so i um so yeah so we came up with the begonia killer and i I have a great uh, cover artist. He lives in Arizona. He's a really talented guy. He's also a musician and does all kind, you know, like a lot of artists, uh, visual artists. I think he, you know, he has a lot of different interests. Um, and, uh, and he's done a lot of, he, he's worked in a lot of different mediums and things like that. And so he has done my covers for the Third Chance Enterprises series. And, you know, we have a process where, you know, he'll say, well, why don't you just kind of, give me some of the elements that are in the book, you know, and uh, give me some of the scenes, and we'll, we'll, we can kind of think together about which ones would create a really exciting uh, cover. You know, and here we thought, well, we wanted, we certainly knew Molly needed to be at the front of the story. You know, the cover, is, uh, the title is The Begonia Killer, who is Kent Kirkland, right, who's a really intense guy. So, so he's got to be on the cover because that's, that's the title of the book. And we decided to add Art Judd, who becomes the love interest in the story in kind of a secondary visual on, on the page. So, you know, and then he'll do, he'll do some sketches. He won't go all the way towards producing a cover, but he'll do a few sketches and we'll kind of talk about, well, is, you know, does that feature, you know, our protagonist the way that we want it to? Is it exciting enough? Um, you know, which of these few that he roughs out, you know, seems like, uh, like the best one for the cover? And then uh, from, you know, and then from there, once we've decided on a general concept, then he'll go to work and take it on his side for a couple months and kind of noodle with it uh, when he when he's inspired to do it. And then we kind of iterate back and forth on little changes and things like that. So
0: um,
1: yeah, so I you know I kind of have a process with titles where I just kind of let them simmer and you know hope that something really grabs at some point during the draft process and say oh that's got to be the title you know. Um, you know, if it doesn't, it doesn't, and you have to do more, more work and more thinking about it. But and then once we've got the title, then as I say, I've got this. You know, uh, the guy, that, the artist I work with, he's great. And and prop the cover certainly has to go to him. Who, you know, he's got he's got a great vision and touch for it. And luckily, I was I was never a very good artist in in middle school mm-hmm. art and <laughs> high school. So mm-hmm. it's it's good that we live in a world where you know you can hook up with people around the country around the world who are talented um uh t- to get those things done well um.
0: well Bill, I just noticed I noticed it before astral plane is next that's Quaid? that's, that's a right that's right. The, a, the
1: first the first couple of chapters are included as a sample at the end of
0: the book mm-hmm. killer yeah mhm and what is that about just a little hint so, for everyone that's right. listening?
1: Right, so Quaid, I mean, as we talked about, Quaid is kind of the the ex-politician with connections all over the world and journalists and politicians from his former life as, a, as the governor of Massachusetts, so he has access to all of these uh, crazy cases, and he's the one who gets the Anarchy of the Mice job that starts that adventure. So, in Astroplane, it is called a third chance side hustle because it's a job that Quaid has to mm. do by himself. You know, he gets this is you know, Astroplane is the book where he gets his own standalone. Astroplane is is a experimental plane that can take off like a regular airplane, and then. It, when it gets up high uh, near the atmosphere, it can engage this kind of nuclear booster and go into space, right, or go into order, which is funny because now we have, in the last couple of months, we have these billionaires going into space like Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. So yeah, it's no. kind of funny. It, it, it's a little bit topical, right? But uh, So anyway, Astroplane is, is a plane that can do that, uh, and it's a secret technology that is, at the beginning of the book, is stolen. So then there's a prologue here where we kind of see Astroplane, this amazing technological marvel that gets stolen by the Chinese government. And then Quaid is engaged by a mysterious client to go and steal back the plane. And not only steal back the plane, but um, the the, uh, source, uh, Quaid's client, says that um, because of all the security that China has around Astroplane, the only way to do it is going to be to steal it in midair. So Quaid's got to somehow cook up a way to steal this airplane, this amazing high astro astroplane craft in midair. Um and so it it's um you know, without giving away too much of the story again it's it's just it's a big, far flung adventure. It's got a very different feel than Durwood's standalone mystery, which was just, you know, kind of nose for the grindstone, uh, fighting injustice and lawyers and does bankers. And then Molly, you know, investigating neighborhood act things and finding out, you know, clues about granola bars and stuff like that. And Quaid is going to be, you know, flying across oceans and dealing with, uh, you know, arms dealers and things like that. And he's got a very high stakes uh, case. So it's got a very, it'll have a very different feel than the Begonia Killer, much more of a big action story, a little bit like Anarchy of the Mice. But it's going to be focused on Quaid. He's going to try, like the devil, to get Durwood to come help him. And uh, I'm not sure that Durwood's going to. So, um, and we may hear a conversation or two with Molly as well, but for the most part, it's going to be uh, Quaid's story. And I, I'm really looking forward to getting into Quaid's backstory. You know, he is kind of a womanizer and and, uh-huh. and and driftless and things like that. And for that reason, a lot of a lot of readers I think like him less than the other two main characters in the series. Um, and I'm excited to kind of delve into how he got to be the way he is and you know, how he how he sees his life and, and the way his life is changing, and so I think we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive on Quaid's character, and hopefully people will come out liking Quaid a little more. I know I had many readers say that while they liked Molly in Anarchy of the Mice after reading Begonia Killer, they liked her even much more, you know, they felt like she was much more relatable, and we learned more about how her grandmother came to live with her, and how Molly got to be, you know, the kind of person she was in her family. And so I'm hoping to do a little bit of the same for Quaid and to, and to give people a different side of him so that people have a little more insight into uh, into his life's journey.
0: When is it coming out? So I'm ready for it.
1: Well, I, I'm thinking it'll probably be next summer. It's a little bit TBDI. I'm also okay, good.
0: I got time I'm, then.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm working on another story at the same time that's a little more in a literary vein it's about two teachers who become kind of teacher friends on the playground and are very different and it talks about how their relationship evolves over the decades and things like that. Uh, so it's it's a it's a totally different style than Third Chance Enterprises books. It's a little more literary with a little bit of a kind of a crossover romance appeal, but so I'm working on that so it, you know it'll it'll depend a bit on you know how my time tips between Astroplane and And uh, the two teachers' story. So yeah, no, plenty of time frame. We'll we'll definitely we'll definitely uh, get get on the schedule. And and there's no
0: oh good because I'm I'm looking at I'm looking at my chair inside. I think I took a picture of it. There's like 30 books on my chair. Uh. And because of what I won't discuss what on my yeah what happened over the week. I haven't read in a couple of days so oh, okay. I've got yeah, I've got Robert Degoni coming on in uh, October, and I really want to get done with all my interviews. so I finished one yeah. from, from up uh, in from November just now uh-huh. um, yeah. I'm getting some some yeah planers and Crime says to that's pretty pretty good, and then there are sometimes I think only once in the ten years, whatever I've been doing for that, working with them did I ever mm-hmm. say, "I can't do this book, I won't do it That's what we're going to talk oh. about on November second. Or when right, we do the right. show on reviews. Yeah, that was the first time. So before we end, where can we find out more about you and your work?
1: Right. So you, you can always go to my website, which is jeffbondbooks.com, to see about new releases and and, and, and mm. you know, blog, blog things and, and all that. Um, I also have a dedicated website called thirdchancestories.com mm. that is just for the Third Chance Enterprises series. And it has um, – it's got some original artwork, kind of cartoon artwork from, from the series, from the characters, and it has little short stories um, and little quick takes from each of the characters. Actually, all the characters – Quaid, Molly, and would all have Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts, um, and so you can follow them on Facebook or Twitter. And the things that they post and the little shorts and the little artwork is on mm. Third Chance Stories as well. So it's a separate, dedicated website um, just for the series. So either of those places, my author website or Third Chance Stories, um, and you can you can stay in touch with the characters as you wait for, for next books in the series.
0: Thank you. This has been fun. So for those of you that didn't hear me before, this brave child at 9 o'clock tonight is going to be interviewed by Dr. Maxine Thompson on August First. And she read my book, and I am totally honored that she asked to review it. Seriously, Um, really honored that she asked to review it. And she will be on my show on October 25th to talk about lineage. Maxine is a black author that lived with a white family for a year. And she tells the story about what happened, and how she endured it, and how she's still friends with them too you now. So it should be interesting. But Jeff, thank you so much. this is beautiful yeah, outside. Yeah, thank you so much,
1: friend, for having me. You've got some great shows coming up. I will tell you what, I, I'm glad you got you got that time off off to rest because they it uh, sounds like you've got some yeah. great shows coming up in August. Yeah.
0: I got even more in September, October, November. The next date I have people is December. I'm booked and I'm doing something I never did before and some of the weeks I'm actually doing three. I don't know how, but I'm gonna figure it out. But thank you so much, everybody. Have a great day. Stay safe everyone and bye.
1: Bye, thank you.